You're listening to TIP. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this Wednesday's release of the Bitcoin Fundamentals podcast. This episode is brought to you by River, the place that I personally go to securely invest in Bitcoin with confidence and with zero fees. On today's show, I have back the super thoughtful Caitlin Long, and she's joined by Mr. Wesley Noble. And we're talking about all things institutional custody. Now, for people that have been watching the Bitcoin ETF news, you know that the floodgates have been opened up to a whole new tranche of trillions in capital. But where is all of this Bitcoin being custody? More importantly, what type of risk does all of this consolidation and custody have on these products? I promise you, this is a mind-blowing conversation. So make sure you hang around until the very end because there's some really juicy stuff and, and important nuggets there near the end of the discussion. But with all of that said, here's my chat with Caitlin and Wes. You're listening to Bitcoin Fundamentals by The Investors Podcast Network. Now for your host, Preston Pish. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. I'm here with Caitlin and Wes. Guys, it is such a pleasure to have you here and to be talking about, in my opinion, a super important topic right now. So welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Preston. And uh, welcome, Wes. Yeah, welcome, Thank Wes. You. Welcome. Tell Appreciate us a little, real fast, uh, Caitlin, uh, tell us a little bit about Wes so he doesn't have to do this for himself. All right. Wes and I are both at Custodia Bank. Uh, we announced in November that we had launched Bitcoin Custody in October. We are live. We have taken our first very substantial customer in, in-house. Wes, I can brag about, comes from the banking industry. You're going to hear that as a theme here. We are Bitcoiners and bankers at Custodia. We were able to hire Wes from Silvergate. He has an applied math background. He is a cryptographer. And he also went to Pacific Coast Banking School, spent 12 years in the banking industry, and was in charge of operations for Silvergate's digital asset business. So this was the margin calls on the Bitcoin-backed loans, as well as got involved with Silvergate's project on the stablecoin, which ultimately didn't take off. And we were able to grab Wes, and he's our VP of Bitcoin Custody. Those of you who are engaging with us on Bitcoin custody, already know him. He is one of our customer-facing people at Custodia. Here's where I want to start this conversation off. So if anybody's paying attention to this space, the one thing that is just relentless these days is the ETF. And my biggest frustration with this ETF is how it's being custodied and how it's being funneled on not all of them, but most of them are going with just one custodian. And when I'm thinking about the risks of this, I don't like it as a Bitcoin. I I mean, you, everybody will say, not your keys, not your coins, take self-custody if you can. But there's, there's numerous situations out there as this thing continues to mature, just with the laws and regulations that are out there, that that's not an option for a lot of people. When we look at this and we want to de-risk it, the custody is so important. And I, I want to start off with an idea that you have champion, but I think a lot of people don't hear the message. And it's a word called bailment. Teach us what bailment is, why it's so important, why 2019 was a groundbreaking year for this term, specifically in Wyoming, but for anybody that's participating or needing some type of custody service, 
lay this on us. This is vital. This is so important. And I think it's at the core. I suspect it's at the core of your custodia bank. Yeah, let me start and then hand it to Wes. Drew Hinkus has on it has his pinned tweet something like "Not your legal title, not your coins." Yes, and it is a play on "Not your keys, not your coins." Wes and I are both adamant that unless you need to use a third party custodian, you should not. So you won't see a lot of custodians saying Say that. that. Don't do business <laughs> with us, right? But we're here because there are a, there are a number of businesses, fiduciary businesses, anyone subject to the investment. Advisors Act uh, or the Investment Company Act that has a requirement that an asset manager store their custodian, have a third party custodian hold the assets for them. That goes back to a lot of fraud that happened in the mutual fund industry in the 1930s. There's a segregation of fund management and fund custody. And we are just fund custodians in that, in that regard. Bailment. What is a bailment? It's valet parking. It's a coat check. You don't turn over legal title to the custodian. When you park your car in a valet parking garage or when you, when you turn in a, a nice, let's assume you have a fur coat, you're not turning over legal title to the restaurant when you check it at the coat check. All you're doing is giving temporary possession of those assets. And that is a very important legal, legal uh, framework that the Wyoming Special Purpose Depository Institutions recognize. Now, you point out that the custodians, there are a couple of different ones. What do they all have in common? Most, it's mostly Coinbase, but of course, Fidelity. And there are a couple of others as well that are smaller that are among the custodian list. Every one of them is using a trust company structure. Custodia is a bank. There is a difference. And the biggest difference, there are several actually, but the biggest one is that banks cannot be dragged into federal bankruptcy court. They are expressly excluded from federal bankruptcy court. What is the significance of that? We saw it in Prime Trust. We saw it in the Celsius bankruptcy. Celsius was not a trust company, but Prime Trust was and is. And what happens is in the Celsius, that's a perfect example. Even though they weren't a trust company, the judge said there's a constructive bailment of the custody assets. So those belong legally to the custody customers, but because they were intermingled in that legal entity with non-custody customers, there were preferences and clawbacks that had to be cleared before the custody customers could take their money. Mm -hmm. So the committee of custody customers agreed to take 72 cents on the dollar just so that they wouldn't have to wait years through the bankruptcy process. What we saw in the case of Prime Trusts is that the state charter trust company is a Nevada trust company. They started down a state receivership, which is generally going to be more favorable to the customers than bankruptcy. Federal bankruptcy court is designed to maximize the assets for the estate. It's not designed to maximize the assets to the customers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Big difference. Okay. So it started in receivership, but then it all ended up in federal bankruptcy court. And now there's a chapter 11 process. We don't know what the haircut's going to end up being, but there is a perfect example of where a trust company ended up not being able to deliver on an actual bailment. This is the fundamental reason why in the securities industry, the custodians are banks, almost entirely banks, because the bankruptcy treatment is really clear. Now, here's the funny thing. I'll, I'll end with this and then we can get into the structure of custodias arrangement because this legal structure that we've that I'm describing had a big impact on how we designed our technology. So I'll kick it over to Wes in a minute. But here's the funny thing, Preston, you'll laugh at this. I haven't talked about this publicly yet. 
I sit back and look at the fact that we had some big banks like Bank of New York Mellon announced that they were getting into Bitcoin custody, right? Mm -hmm. Some of the big guys were coming for this industry. Mm -hmm. And then the SEC implemented SAB 121 that said, oh, for Bitcoin, that's different than securities. Bitcoin custody has to, you, you have to put your assets on balance sheet, which means if you're a bank, it's going to attract a tier one capital charge. Well, it's only the SEC public filers that SAB 121 applies to. So here's the funny thing. I think the SEC looked at that as a firewall against the crypto industry and said, we're going to keep these big banks out of crypto. They're in it. It's just that they can't grow billions and billions and billions of dollars. So I don't even know mm. if those big banks that are in custody even competed for the Bitcoin ETF custody because they would have to hold, say, 8% of every dollar under custody in oh. capital. It starts to become extremely expensive, right? They mm. have custody businesses. They're just not as big as they otherwise would be had the SEC not implemented SAB 121. So now you see where I'm going. Yes. Here's the funny thing. Coinbase is by far the biggest custodian of the Bitcoin ETFs. Yeah. And it's a company the SEC was suing. But yeah. because of SAB 121, guess what? The crypto industry, namely Coinbase and Fidelity, are the custodians on the ETFs. That is, I'm sure, not what the SEC would have preferred. Wow, that's crazy. That's great. Wes, any uh, other additional uh, highlights on that particular yeah. product? Yeah. Well, just when I think about our solution, we really extend that bailment concept into the structure of our account setup as well. So uh, those assets are segregated on chain. We don't do any omnibus customer pooling. So customers can see their funds on chain at any time. Their UTXOs that they send us are bound to them and them alone. Uh, so that ensures that that complete segregation uh, on chain is visible for them, which is a really important point I think we want to drive home. And this maximizes the customer protections and transparency for those funds on chain. And that legal bailment structure really accentuates that, that product offering. Wow. I'm a we little speech. UTXOs. Yeah, yeah. That's, 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 that's been that's a hot topic. Lisa Huff likes to talk about it, right? Yeah. We custody UTXOs. Others that's will right. custody omnibus Bitcoin. We custody the actual UTXOs. There's your difference. Yeah, that tells you everything. And so for people that aren't familiar with some of these terms, just think of UTXOs almost like the like if you had physical cash and coins and there was a dollar and 87 cents and there was it was made up of two pennies and this many dimes and this many quarters, you can see exactly what the composition of that account balance is by the sheer physical I'm calling them coins in that account. And so if it wasn't omnibus and you were mixing them all together, you would have no clue that 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 account over there belongs to Preston Pish or whoever the person might be that that's the UTXO is attributed to. Guys, this is really exciting. So I, I think the if I'm putting myself in the audience's shoes, I think they're probably saying, okay, so why isn't all these ETFs using Custodia right now? Does it have to do with the timing of them trying to get their ETF approved? And maybe some of them are going to transition over. Like what's the, how are you guys looking at this moving forward into the coming year? Well, we did have one of the ETF managers reach out to us, and a lot of it is timing. And this is one of the unfortunate realities of what happened with Custodia vis-a-vis -vis the Fed. Mm -hmm. uh, because we got our certificate of authority to operate in September of 2022, and then after the denial and the disparagement, it took us longer. I'll leave it at that. A lot yeah. will eventually come out about what happened in that interim period, but especially if there's ever a damages portion of our trial. But obviously, we got delayed. And unfortunately, we had a lot of, we had to pull engineers off the custody project and product people off the custody project to do a lot of other things that needed to 
that we needed to rebuild during that time frame. So long story short, yeah, it took us longer. And uh, here we are, though. We survived it. A lot of companies that were trying to go down the same path as Custodia did not survive it. But when, it pu- when push came to shove, the reality is we're too new. And it is true that the other custodians have been around for several years. And that makes a difference in the securities industry. But we'll get there. I'm not worried about it. We've got other niche markets. The ETF market, of course, is, is a big one. But we've got other niche markets. Uh, some of our customers are looking at us as a diversification. Mm-hmm. Um, this is something new. It used to be there was really only one or two custodians that uh, were deemed secure. Uh, that's no longer true. There are others as well. But there's a desire because folks are starting to understand that there are differences in the custody architecture and operations that they want to diversify. Mm-hmm. And so some folks are starting to diversify away into us. I want to talk about the delay, but I, I want to ask it, or I want to bring up that point after this uh, really simple question. When you're looking at the custody of this, there's a lot of people that now are saying that they're fearful of a 6102 attack on all of these treasuries. So let's fast forward two, three years into the future. Bitcoin is super successful. We're looking at the sheer size of these treasuries. There's hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of Bitcoin inside of these, these treasuries at these custodians. And there's a lot of people muttering, all right, so the government has figured out that Bitcoin is taking over and they pull a uh, 1930s 6102 and they basically take all the Bitcoin out of these treasuries and they stuff fiat cash into the hands of, of the individuals. My question for you, as it pertains to this HB 74 that was passed in the state of Wyoming and uh, mm-hmm. different states that are doing everything that they can to protect themselves against such federal overreach, help us understand what that the scenario that I described, how would you see something like that playing out? Are there states' rights that will really protect the end users? Help put us at ease here, I guess, is what I'm really yeah. asking. Well, I mean, the reality is we are onshore in the United States. Okay. So if you are worried about that, obviously, as a US domiciled corporation, we are a state of Wyoming corporation and a US taxpayer. Yes. If they use the tax code to effectively effect a 6102 confiscation of gold again, and it happens to be the confiscation of Bitcoin this time. Yes. I mean, this is one of the issues of using a third-party counterparty that is regulated. A third-party counterparty that is regulated has to comply with the laws. Whether you agree with them or not, you have to comply with the laws. And that is what your charter requires you to do. Now, um, you're asking an interesting question that relates to the fact that we're a state-chartered bank. It is public information that Custodia applied to become FDIC-insured, and the answer was essentially hell no. And we knew that. We knew that, frankly. Wyoming designed the Special Purpose Depository Institution Charter back in 2017 precisely because we knew that Operation Chokepoint 1.0 had caused a lot of legitimate crypto companies to lose their bank relationships. And if you go back far enough, actually, in crypto history, one of the reasons that Coinbase broke out from a number of the early payment platforms, which is what it was back in 2013-ish, one of the reasons they broke out is because they lost their bank account at Silicon Valley Bank. This is all public information. And they were able to replace that bank account with Cross River pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And some of the other companies that were US-based ended up going offshore and focusing offshore because they couldn't do that. 
And so Coinbase then became the 10-ton gorilla, right? What was the distinguishing feature? It was that 10 years ago, they were able, even though they lost a bank relationship, to replace it quickly, whereas others couldn't. Mm. And so this has been a perpetual issue in the industry for a long time. So long story short, here's where I'm going. Some folks would look at it at Custodia not being FDIC insured as a feature, not a bug, because it means the FDIC does not have jurisdiction over us. So we tried. Mm. We tried to become federally regulated and were rebuffed. So now you're asking a really interesting question, peering into the future. Is that going to make a difference? It very much depends, right? Our lawsuit, as you know, is over whether over the Federal Reserve's denial of Custodia's master account. Custodia also applied to become a Federal Reserve member bank, which would have made us federally regulated by the Fed, mm. and we were denied. That's kind of interesting that, that uh, somehow the universe has a way to kind of put up roadblocks when it doesn't want you to go a certain way. Now, I don't know if that's uh, necessarily what's playing out here, but it would be interesting if, if maybe that was serendipitous, well, I guess. It, it's kind of funny. It's like the SEC putting up SAB 121 yeah, to keep the big yeah. banks out of custody and then Coinbase and Fidelity get all the custody business. I'm quite sure the SEC is not happy about that. They can't be happy no. about that. I just want to... Uh, so I know you are not allowed to talk about this ongoing case, which is the result of... For people that, that are in this space, they know that you were trying to do this for a very, very long time. Years, uh, Caitlin. They also know that there's a, a case right now between Custodia and the, the Federal Reserve Board of Governors at uh, Kansas City. And I know you're not allowed to talk about any of this. So in preparation for this discussion, <laughs> I am going to talk about this because I want to talk <laughs> about this. And everything that I can find, I was able to find documents online with .gov addresses here to do a little bit of research. I know you can't respond to this. I know you're not allowed to say anything as I'm talking, but I'm going to talk and I'm going to kind of lay out my opinion on what's taking place here. So, All right, Wes and I will keep our mouths uh, Okay, quiet. don't even say we are, we are operating in spite of the fact we don't have a Fed master account. Yeah. That's, it, that's really important to know. We are, we are operating. That did not kill us, but now over to you. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. So one of the most common questions I get from family and friends is, Preston, where do you buy your Bitcoin from personally? And the answer is really simple. I buy it on river.com. Not only can you easily buy Bitcoin with zero fees on recurring orders, you can have peace of mind knowing Bitcoin on River is held one-to-one -one in multi-sig cold storage, all while being fully licensed and regulated in the U.S., Plus, their relationship managers are U.S.-based and available by phone for you or your business. Additionally, River has built their own infrastructure from the ground up, which means they don't rely on third parties to function like the other Bitcoin exchanges. River also created a new feature not found anywhere else called River Link. It allows you to send Bitcoin over a text message to easily orange pill your family, pay a friend for dinner, or send a gift. There's absolutely a new standard in Bitcoin and River is setting it. So go to river.com slash fundamentals and get up to $100 free when you sign up and buy Bitcoin. That's river.com slash fundamentals. Our friends at Coriant provide wealth management services centered around you. Coriant's goal is to exceed your expectations and simplify your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, 
causes and communities they care about. They are one of the largest integrated fee-only U.S. registered investment advisors, and Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. The teams at Corient put the collective power of their expertise into building you the custom wealth, investment, and family office solutions that can help you reach your holistic financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, speak with an advisor today at Corient.com. That's spelled C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. That's Corient.com. When Rain Wilson had a great idea, he turned to AT&T Business. They assured him no matter how out there his idea may be, they had his back. So he came up with this, a talking pillow designed to put you to sleep, backed by a reliable network and the only network with built-in security controls. And thus, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. All right, back to the show. Well, my frustration, and this is laid out in the documents that I read online, is just the delay and how that has impacted your business economically to even do what you're doing right now, which I think is a massive highlight. And I think it's, I think it's other bankers playing very dirty in the politics. And I'm of the firm opinion that you have government lobbying and big Wall Street banks that are basically joined at the hip and working together. And these are not your words. These are my words as a podcast host. I'm just going to throw that out there. But when I go through this and I lay out like everything that I'm seeing, I think that there's some worthy, very worthy highlights. First of all, is the delay in the decision making that uh, they were getting ready to make a decision. Then all of a sudden they didn't. And it was all these miscellaneous things that they brought up, inconsistent treatment, political influence, legal compliance, the impact on the, on the business, the innovation uh, stifling that they did. Again, the economic implications, regulatory clarity that seemed like it was very clear, then all of a sudden they changed their mind on, on some of this stuff. So like just on the, on the inconsistent treatment, there were overlaps in reviews. There was violations of uh, federal law, rules, policies, and procedures that are very clear. In fact, the, the legal case that, that I saw had 23 different violations of federal laws, rules, and policies, and procedures that the Federal Reserve conducted against your bank. They had changes in the Reserve Bank memos. They had guideline implementations in Tier 3 and institution changes. The list goes on and on and on. Like, I mean, it is really long. And I think that this, for anybody listening to this, I guess here's my point in laying all this out. If you're in politics or you are sitting in some type of financial chair in DC, I've never seen something so corrupt personally, right? As reading through this document. It's a very long document. It is, there is a ton of information that's laid out in here, and there's no way anybody could read this and think that there wasn't foul play going on. So if there's somebody listening, please take an interest in, in this because boy, oh boy, what, what a joke. And here's the, here's the irony for me. This is one-to-one. This is, this is what and I'm sorry, I'm going off on a rant now, and I'm not even interviewing, be interviewing you, but I just have to put this out. This filing 
was for if I put a dollar worth of buying power into this bank, that they are going to have one dollar there and not be lending it out. How in the world can anybody in government not want to approve something like this, especially in the face of the Silicon Valley Bank disaster that required more printing and more shoving of made up paper shrewd buck money into the hands of the people that are making all the mistakes in these fractional reserve games that just keep blowing up. It's insane to me. It's totally nuts. And, I, and you know what? It's very understandable because the game is rigged. We've all figured it out. We see it's rigged. We see participants like the two here that I'm supposedly interviewing, but I'm not doing a very good job of it, sitting here trying to do something about it. And there's just more corruption being played. So Boy, you want to read? I'm, you know what? I'm going to post a link in the show notes to this filing so that if you want to read it and you want to dig into everything that I saw in preparation for this interview, it's going to blow your mind, folks. Blow your mind. So let's go on to some real questions here. Russ, Sorry, I had to I, get that I'm, off I'm my gonna, chest. <laughs> I'm going to quote P Paul Grewal, uh, had a had an incredible tweet in the face of all the SEC stuff relating to the, SE, the ETF rollout. I am biting my tongue so hard in polluting. Okay. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. It is so frustrating. So frustrating. And so much of the uh, changes, when you read through the document, what you're going to find is after the, so they were right up to approval, FTX happens and it's like, oh, stop. Everybody's corrupt and everybody's bad. So like, let's not go in there with any evidence to adjust our position. Just change the position. We were telling them that they were great in all these areas. But now they're bad in all those areas because FTX blew up. And it's like, give me a break. Like, give me a break. Let's go line by line and quantify why they're, they're maybe not meeting whatever standard, even though you said that they were prior to all the other previous documentation and correspondence. It's just, good Lord. Well, there's, there is one thing that I can add because you brought up FTX. I had publicly disclosed that, that I had been handing evidence of probable crimes over to law enforcement oh. in summer 2022 about mm. one of the crypto frauds. Mm -hmm. It is now publicly disclosed in some of the documents that you just read yes. apparently in preparing for this, that FTX was the exchange that I was handing evidence of probable crimes over to law enforcement. I came into that, into possession of that evidence from someone who was able to get into their private chat rooms and came to me with it. I didn't even review all of it. Once I reviewed a little bit of it and understood, oh my gosh, this has to go to law enforcement, I handed it to law enforcement. So there's a double irony of <laughs> the timing and all those references to FTX because I think it's safe to say that federal regulators in Operation Choke Point 2.0 tried to paint everyone, including the law abiding parties as with the same brush as FTX. And they ended up sweeping out someone who was actively working with law enforcement to clean up the fraud. I am floored. And as a side note, at the attempts to rehabilitate Sam Bankman-Fried, I knew all along that was a criminal enterprise. Yeah. And, I, had the, and had the receipts for it. It's very, very telling to see the books that are written about them, the interviews, the I'm sure there's going to be movies. Oh, just, yeah. Let's, let's move on to the positive, <laughs> the, the yes. real building that's I, I happening. Let's talk about the platform because this yes. is very cool. And, it, and it's the kind of thing that prevents 
Yes. The shenanigans we're very we're talking about right now Amen. from occurring. Yes. And, and, and hell, I mean, it's it's obvious that if FTX had tried to become a U.S. entity, that all of the fail safes that apply to regulated financial institutions, even to money transmitters in the mm-hmm. U.S., would have caught the fraud. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it was offshore and there haven't been authorized onshore parties is part of the reason why FTX was able to perpetrate the fraud that it did for as long as it did. But can we hand it over to Wes and he can talk yeah. about the technology? Let's do it's it, It's very cool. Well, we talked a little bit about the legal structure. Obviously, bailment is key here. But you know, we took a lot of care and thought to build a solution in-house. We utilize Bitcoiner experts in product engineering, security, compliance, and operations. So that in-house build really allowed us to minimize and mitigate our third-party and counterparty risk, which is really a critical component for this space. So that the product we've developed kind of takes the benefits of cold wallet security uh, with the speed uh, and availability of warm wallets um, themselves. So considering those downsides, you know, both the cold wallet and, and hot wallet structures, cold wallet structures trust the people in the process. In a critical way, that means that they're not resilient to personnel changes or issues around those personnel. Uh, so some custodians have been burned recently around those kind of, kind of concerns. The hot wallet structures, while they're highly available, also offer a really broad attack vector for nefarious actors, and we, we wanted to mitigate that. So we offered an alternative model. We thought, if there's these two issues, why not take the best of both worlds? Um, so how do we do that? So we employ cryptographically secure forums backed by tamper-resistant hardware. Enables custodians to provide digital asset custody that features the security of those cold wallets um, with availability and speed of a warm, warm wallet. In terms of what we offer, uh, we currently offer deposits and withdrawals for Bitcoin custody uh, for institutional customers. So I think our solution is pretty straightforward and sound. There's not a bunch of bells and whistles at this point, but we wanted to start slow and, and uh, walk before we run. Love it. Ultimately, I can't get too far into it, but we, we do trust cryptography in our process more than the people. And I think that speaks to, again, that Bitcoin ethos that we have here. So if, say, a customer wanted to custody one pair of keys or walk us through the key management, uh, very detailed. Yeah, certainly. So those keys are entirely with us. The customers never have to manage anything of that nature. For deposits, they just generate a deposit address and send that our way. Everything about that process is held in-house. And we utilize kind of best-in-market back-end for that. you know, part of our security controls is we're not going to get too far into security controls in a podcast. Um, so I don't want to get too far into that. But certainly we have monitoring, comprehensive logging, all of our infrastructure network and co-base have been fully penetration tested. So all of that backend is well set up to custody those private keys, which, which are never extractable and, and nobody has insight into and gives it as a customer. So right now, today, it seems like you have deposits and money market, BTC custody, and then USD payments is kind of the three services that you're offering. Is, is any of those, or I guess the question would be, is there anything that you plan to expand beyond that? Or is that kind of w- what your focus is going to be here for the coming years? That's definitely where we are right now. Two caveats. One is check our website because not all services are available in all states. And I have to give the obligatory disclaimer that our deposits are not FDIC insured. So definitely look at our website for the appropriate disclaimers. So yes, the answer is we will be deepening the product. One question that came out, Preston, when you approached us about coming onto your show to discuss the custody platform is, are we going to be offering trading services? So we talked a little bit earlier about the segregation of asset management and custody. Mm -hmm. I believe in the segregation of custody and trading as well. 
Uh, because a lot of the shenanigans are that have happened in this industry happened because there was a combination of custody and trading. And so institutionally, again, any fiduciary is going to have to segregate those functions. And so that's what we've built. We do not want to trade. Uh, we are not traders. We will offer integrations to exchanges mm. and platforms that will provide trading services, but we will, not, we will not be the trader ourselves. It's in a way, it's kind of it's like, you know, Bank of New York or State Street in the securities custody business being plumbed into the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ or all the different trading venues, but they don't trade themselves. Mm. If you want exchange services, you go outside of the platform, but the platform has an integration into those services. So that, yes, we are approved by the Wyoming Division, but it is public information as part of our charter hearing that our business plan at charter did include those. We don't have any announcements for anything yet, but stay tuned. As, as Wes said, we're walking before we're running. And as a new bank, you know, one of the funny things is it took us a long time after we applied to start Bitcoin custody to get the exam scheduled, much less done. Mm -hmm. Okay. That in and of itself, we disclosed that we applied for Bitcoin custody in April and we took our first deposit in October. Why did it take so long? Well, it takes time to get to get an exam scheduled, then you got to go through the exam, then you got to get your letter. I wish it could have happened sooner, but it didn't. And that's okay. Because a bank is supposed to walk before it runs and is supposed to ask for permission, not forgiveness. And that takes time. You don't want to move fast and break things as a bank. So yes, the answer is we will make those services available through our platform to our customers at some point. Stay tuned. We have not gotten approval to implement those yet but it is on our roadmap. And we will be deepening those, those offerings, as well as providing prime services. That's another thing that's publicly disclosed. Same thing, we're just talking now about transaction services, basically integrations into the exchanges. There will be integrations into the lenders for those who are interested in a directed, essentially a securities lending model. We will not make those loans. Big difference. So Wes at Silvergate did that. When Silvergate was a lending bank and was lending against Bitcoin as collateral, Custodia will not do that. We're a non-lending bank. But that doesn't mean if you don't want to get access to that, that you can't. Sure, you can. That's the idea. It will just open up the integration to outside lenders. And then you would direct us just like your 401k administrator directs the custodian of the 401k plan to do certain things. You'd have the ability to direct us to do that as your custodian. It's very similar conceptually to this segregation in the securities industry that keeps a lot of the shenanigans from occurring. What do you guys, when you look at everything that's developed over the last two to three years, and we look at where we're at right now with this ETF approval, the large banks are coming on board. It sounds like we have some amazing custodians uh, showing up. What are you most excited for in the coming year to two years uh, with Bitcoin adoption and just the overall ecosystem? The deepening of the ecosystem, I, I'd love to hear Wes's views on this because we've got a hardcore group of Bitcoiners in, in Custodia who are following all of it. And I think the deepening of the ecosystem, eventually, a Custodia wants to be able to offer layer two payment services. That's not to be clear on our approved roadmap, roadmap right now, but we've talked about that. We're watching the Lightning Network very closely. And of course, we want to be able to go to international customers as well. Right now, we're only handling domestic businesses as customers. But I'm really excited about the layer two opportunities. 
in Bitcoin. And especially for merchants that are using this for cross-border payments, especially Lightning. We're watching that to a, a large degree. And it is also publicly disclosed that Custodia was approved as of the charter for issuing a stablecoin-like instrument. There's, we have not done that. We don't have the final approval to do it. And again, we're philosophically asking for permission, not forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And given what the Fed said about us in about stablecoins, banks issuing stablecoins, we're waiting for some clarity on that before we proceed. But you know what's so interesting, Preston? We're recording this on the day that Howard Lutnick announced at, on CNBC during an interview at Davos that Cantor Fitzgerald is the custodian of all of Tether's T-bills. Yes, and I you did know see that. Fascinating. Yeah. Yes. Okay. That is fascinating. I respect Cantor Fitzgerald a lot. Um, have dealt with them in my career, my earlier career. You know, they were one of the firms that was hardest hit by 9-11. Many of their employees died in 9-11. So I have a special place in my heart for that firm for having survived it and 20 years later still thriving. But what's interesting is Cantor Fitzgerald is a primary dealer. And that means because they're not a bank, I looked it up today, there's no Fed master account, they're clearing all those US dollar payments for Tether, just like all of their other customers through a clearing bank. Mm -hmm. And I was looking to see who's their clearing bank. And I found one reference to one of their clearing banks being Bank of New York Mellon. So here's a really interesting, it's coming full circle, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It's not okay for the crypto native companies to be doing this. But there's a there's a big double standard, because Mm. apparently, the big incumbents are allowed to do this, but others are not. That is fascinating. You have some really profound thoughts around stable coins with respect to the the risk that they impose on banking balance sheets, because of how fast they settle relative to the legacy rails. Can you describe this for people so that they can kind of really wrap their head around how profound and important this idea is? Because it's almost like you're dealing with one, the new world of finance, which is moving at the speed of light. And then you have this legacy finance system that's moving at the speed of like the Oregon Trail, you know, Constantino <laughs> wagons moving around. And like they're, they're incompatible with each other, but, but break this down for people. Why are they incompatible? Why is this so much risk added to a balance sheet? Well, we saw it in fact at Wes's prior employer, Silvergate and Wes was working on the, on the stablecoin project there. So I'd be interested in, in his views, but it's fundamentally very simple. The U S dollar system is designed. ACH settles one to three days. Fedwire can settle intraday, but you can't program it to settle at a particular 12.39 and 23 seconds, right? Something like that. You can't do. It's not programmable. FedNow is starting to get there. But the irony is that banks like us are blocked from using FedNow, but we've got the technology to do it. So go figure. Anyway, it's the difference in, in settlement. Bitcoin settles in 10 minutes, whereas I just described the settlement cycles for US dollars. And one of the problems is, that for a bank that, that wasn't sitting 100% in cash, it's clear that when the deposit run occurs, as happened in spades in March of last year, that took down several banks, four, four fairly large banks, um, Silicon Valley, First Republic, and then Silvergate and Signature, that if they weren't sitting 100% in cash, that those deposits could disappear very, very quickly. And it wasn't just the crypto industry's deposits, it was also just the tech industry's deposits. And 
I guess nobody, it, it didn't occur to folks to upgrade the liquidity models for the fact that we could use one of these to withdraw 100% of our cash through online banking intraday if we're willing to pay a Fedwire fee. And that's what happened. So Wes, let me kick it over to you because you've lived this. Yeah. You came from the banking world. Tell us your perspective. Yeah, I think the, the speed is really the, the paramount issue here. And, and frankly, it's, as you said, the Oregon Trail versus lightning speed. I think that allowed for maneuvering, right? That allowed for adjustments to how we're managing liquidity and things of that nature. Whereas if you have something at the speed of light, there, there is no chance to act. So it really exposes that fractional reserve model. And the framework that was set up that allowed for those maneuvers in the past that would not be possible in a stable point, I think, you know, kind of highlights the full reserve model that we operate under and how that really can work in a stable point setup. That's such an important point that you added there, Wes, that I think I missed in my description is it's not just this, the difference in the speed between the two systems. It's also that one is fully reserved and the other one is grossly fractionally reserved <laughs> and when you're when the one that's moving so slow is fractionally reserved relative to the other one it only it makes it more obvious when you get into one of these runs caitlin i'm curious your opinions from a macro standpoint so the tga is being drawn down it's the when we look at mm. the backstop facility that was stood up for silicon valley bank it's blowing out there's no way they're winding this thing down anytime soon these are my words right and so I'm just looking at like what options they have until that TGA basically zeroes out. And it looks like they have to pivot very soon. Like in the coming three months, they're going to have to do some type of a pivot to be more accommodative and to add more monetary units into this game. Is that how you're seeing it based on all your expertise, both you and, and Wes, all your expertise on uh, traditional financial rails? Yeah, I'm looking at this and saying, I'm not sure how the Fed is going to unwind the the facility that was designed to stop the bank run on, on small banks. There's been a bank walk since then. I just posted yesterday a chart that was up in a Zero Hedge article. And I don't fully agree with everything in the article, but the chart was stunning. And it's correct, which is that there has been a continued bank walk from the small banks. Mm -hmm. And that without the Fed facility that was put in place last March, the small banks have less than $0.05 cents in cash for every dollar of deposit. And the large banks have had a lot of deposits flow from the small banks into the large banks, and they're now north of 12 cents. Again, ponder how fast a bank run could occur at those banks. The Fed's going to step in and provide liquidity. That's its job, agree with it or not, uh, but it is its job, and try to stem bank runs. That's exactly what it did in March, and it did succeed. The question then is, are they going to be able to continue this? A lot of folks, if you look at March, basically the, the punchline is there are a lot of things that are lining up in March. And the expiration of that facility, which had a one-year period, um, as you say, the, t the Treasury General account, the reverse repo facility, and this is the all... Having. That, well, the having. The, the, the Bitcoin having's in, in April, but I guarantee the Fed doesn't care about that. Um, the, uh, no, I'm talking... Just the internal I'm, plumbing of yeah. the Fed is... This is the reason why the fixed income market, when you add all this up, is assuming that there are going to be rate cuts. But what's fascinating is that if history is a guide, the rate cuts don't start until there's an accident somewhere. Mm -hmm. and, and what I would caution folks, you know, a lot of folks in the Bitcoin community assume that just because the Fed's balance sheet is expanding, that that means that, you know, hyperinflation is around the corner. Be careful. It does, it does not. 
in these kinds of scenarios, when the Fed's balance sheet expands, they're, they're filling the bathtub that has drained out, mm-hmm. if you will. They're trying to prop up the total amount of credit in the economy and not have a debt deflation. And that's why it doesn't show up as you know, high inflation or hyperinflation when the Fed does these things. Preston, I don't know. I saw in that Zero Hedge article, they were tweeted out Mar- tweeting out that March is going to be lit. <laughs> and um, the March timeframe <laughs> is going to be interesting. And to your point, overlay the fact that we're going to have a halving in Bitcoin in April, that's going to be interesting. And then, we've, of course, it's, a, it's an election year, right? So you don't, you know, when the Fed never wants to be no. accused of being anything other than independent. I'll just state that as a fact. It doesn't want to be accused. But anyway, it doesn't want to necessarily sway the election in one, one way or another. And it's perpetually, this is, this is a, a fact of history, presidents put pressure on the Fed to ease during election years, period. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that that's one of the reasons why the fixed income market is assuming that interest rates are going to be, come, interest rate cuts are coming this spring. Wes, do you have anything to add on that? I think you summed it up perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's exciting. I think those are the, those are definitely the big dynamics. And I think the election piece of it is way more important than maybe what some have been talking about. I think that it's, it's a very big deal as well, that they need to be somewhat ahead of this. They definitely cannot have another Silicon Valley bank deflationary event that's kind of happening at the snap of a finger. Like they have to be way out in front of that this, this year for sure. So yeah, I think they're going to pivot. I think it's maybe going to be a little earlier than people are expecting, or maybe they're going to start easing into it. And boy, it's going to get interesting. And I agree. They're not talking about the Bitcoin halving, but we are. And it's going to be a big deal. It's going to be a very (laughs) big deal. Well, it's so so interesting because if you go back to the 1990s, I started my career in 1994 doing bank mergers at Solomon Brothers. And there were twice the number of banks back then as there are today. There was a huge consolidation wave. Well, what happened after the 19... late 1980s real estate crash, Greenspan engineered a really steep yield curve. And that was designed to bail out the banks indirectly. Why? Because banks lend long and borrow short. Mm -hmm. And so they were earning a higher interest rate on their longer term loans because the yield curve was steep than they were paying on deposits, which they were borrowing short term. Mm -hmm. So they were doing the maturity transformation game and the Fed gave them an assist by steepening the yield curve massively mm-hmm. in that time frame. The impact of that, though, Preston, was that the number of banks got cut in half. Mm. So now the question is, we're kind of seeing a, a rhyming because that, that BTFP facility for the small banks is designed to recapitalize the small banks. It's risk-free arbitrage mm. and that's what, uh, for the small banks. And that's what the, the Zero Hedge article was pointing out. They're not wrong. And so that's the analogy of the really steep yield curve that the Fed created, the Greenspan created in the early 90s to recapitalize the banks. That's what BTFP has done to recapitalize the small banks, but it didn't work. And there was a massive bank consolidation wave. And I think that's probably going to happen again. Wes, do you agree with me on that? Well, absolutely. I mean, that trend has been going on for some time. So I, I think this only speeds that up. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. An iFlex Stretch Studio franchise offers its clients the best in professional-assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase 
joints flexibility and improve your joints range of motion, helping you move more freely. Prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast. Don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing health and wellness business from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. Find out more today. Call 888-994-3539 or visit iFlexPodcast.com. Call right now, 888-994-3539 or visit iFlexPodcast.com. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one. And I actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right. Back to the show. I don't even think that it's just banking. I think it's across all industries that you're watching the consolidation of, of enterprise. And I think that if we were going to really kind of look at the cause and effect of all of this stimulus, all this inner intervention that's been happening for decades, each cycle, it's quote unquote saved. But what's not discussed or what the, the cause and effect of that saving the economy is, is further and further consolidation of equity right. into the hands of fewer and fewer businesses. Yeah, I think that that's it's a glaring example of it in in banking. But I think that if you did go out into other industries, you would find the exact same situation is playing out across the board and across the the globe, not just in the U.S. Everywhere you look, 
because it's just all so harmonized. All this, all this central banking activity that's taking place is just completely coordinated together. You can see it in the, the growth of the M2 and, and the contraction of M2 uh, across the board, right? It's so interesting because on that topic, Lynn Alden has a really interesting observation in her book. You guys come from a you know, science background as, as she does as well. And I love the way that scientists think about this because it was really profound, her observation that what caused, the, what caused money to kind of morph in its definition 50 years ago was because we went to 100% fiat standard mm-hmm. all around the world and we've never been there before. And it's the first and only time in human history that she alleges, and I think she's probably right, I can't think of an alternative where good money was crowding out, bad money was crowding out good, where mm-hmm. fiat currency what, you know, crowded out the commodity money that was gold. And how, why is that? Because usually it's the good money that's crowding out the bad. Why is it that that happened? And her answer was that it was telecom. Mm-hmm. It was the ability to, for the data leg of transactions to move at the speed of light and gold was money, and that was limited to moving at the speed of matter. Mm-hmm. And so it had to just keep getting abstracted away and abstracted away and abstracted away. And people just wanted the ability to move money quickly. And so the fiat money crowded out commodity money. Well, her thesis is the opposite is now coming full circle because yes, is. Bitcoin is ledger money that's not controlled by anybody. It is better money. I know there's a huge debate as to whether it's money or not. I won't get into that. But if you just assume for the moment that it is a medium of exchange to at least some people, as opposed to just a speculative instrument, that it does move at the speed of light. And it is harder money than the fiat money that we're all using right now. And what is the impact of that? You asked early on, what's, what's coming down the pike? I think that's a pretty profound trend. And I think her explanation of it is right. We haven't had the ability to move a commodity money at the speed of light until Bitcoin. How incredible was that book, by the way? Oh, amazing. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely a, amazing. That book is a, yeah. Broken Money yeah. is the name of this book. If you have not read this book, let me tell you, you need to get your hands on it. Caitlin, I want to ask you a question. The tokenization of like real equity. In your mind, if let's take Apple or Google stock and it becomes tokenized so that it's immediately saleable, the thing that I can't get past is you're, st- you're always going to have to be dealing with stock certificates of who that equity, who the rightful owner of that yeah. equity is, right? And uh, when I look at blockchain, quote, I'm using blockchain in air quotes here. When I think of people that are saying, well, it's going to be equities next. And heck, you have uh, Larry Fink kind of running around this week talking yeah. in, in, this, in this manner. When I think about this, I just don't understand why banks can't just set up their own networks with each other and say, hey, here's the ledger that the five of us agree is whatever. This is how many Apple stock we have today. This is how much you have. This is how many Google stocks we have. And uh, when we exchange these things immediately on our ledger... We're just going to, you know, swap the stock certificate into my name and or your name. I just I think that that's kind of how this evolves. I don't necessarily see this evolving in a decentralized way. What what am I missing? Or I guess why is that argument wrong? Or am, am, is there something that I'm missing majorly in, in that? It's not, and we already have it, and it's through the DTC. They electronically settle debits and credits. But here's the thing. 
they're using old technology, kind of like the ACH system. You settle your US dollars in Mm -hmm. one to three days Mm -hmm. or Fedwire. You can do same day, but you can't program it. The, The problem is the DTC has a similar constraint on the security side. And it goes to the root of the problem, which is that corporations are registered in analog form. If we could get corporate registrations at secretaries of state to be done in digital form, natively digital, we'd solve all this. Because the easiest thing to do would be to have an API call to the Delaware Secretary of State's office to verify that the sheriff's stock that you're buying was validly issued. Mm. And instead, what we have is this all these layers of abstraction that create you know, naked short positions inherently. Why is it naked short positions? Because the, the, the systems on Wall Street are never in sync with each other. Never. Mm. That's a profound thought. Why is it that they're allowed to have all of these operational fault tolerances? And the answer is because the systems are never in sync with each other. So I worked on this. I don't know if you know this. I worked on this very problem. I was the first... Uh, blockchain project that I worked with with the government was with the state of Delaware, the Delaware Blockchain Initiative in 2015, hmm. to try to get natively digital registrations of corporate, st- corporate stock. Wow. You know, okay, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to disclose something I've, I've, I don't think I've ever publicly disclosed. I was working with a company called Symbiant. I was the president of the company. And Symbiant was partnered with the state of Delaware for smart contracts. And they yeah. were going to use the Symbiant platform to do corporate registrations. And Symbian's engineers, who are, by the way, Bitcoin engineers or early Bitcoiners, went in and started looking at the integrations. And guess what they found, Preston? They found that the Delaware Secretary of State's computer systems had multiple hackers sitting on the line and disclosed it to the state of Delaware. And in return, how did the state of Delaware react? They shot Symbian. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I was a bystander to all of that. I wasn't actively part of it. But I was the president of the company and I'm floored. So what does that tell you about Mm -hmm. what's going on, right? Because Mm -hmm. there were people sitting on the Delaware Secretary of State's system getting filings for mergers before they've been announced and the like. Okay. And so I shared that over the years with the SEC that you got to look into this. And I don't know if they have. But the reaction of the state of Delaware to learning that their system was insecure and had been hacked, I was really surprised. But it was classic, you know, the, the big registered agents and uh, there's one, one based in Delaware, very powerful. The previous governor was the one who was supportive of upgrading the IT system at the Delaware Secretary of State to allow natively digital registrations. Doesn't have to be a blockchain, by the way. Just anything that's con- that, that, that where you could make an API call to verify that the share of stock you're buying is legit. Then we could collapse all these layers and all these abstractions of in the securities system that prevent the system from ever being accurate and ever being in sync with each other. But they didn't want to do it. There were too many people making too much money off the old system Mm. that was inefficient. And where have we seen that? I just laid it out in securities. Have we not seen the same thing in banking? And, you know, look, I mean, those of us who are intrepid warriors on these kinds of things, Part of the reason I switched over from working on the securities problem to the US dollar problem is is because I also realized we wouldn't solve the securities problem until we solve the US dollar problem. But actually, the US dollar leg is one of the reasons why the securities industry is still T plus two days to settle a stock trade. We're going to T plus one in May. But the biggest reason historically, well, in the last 10 years was the US dollar piece was so clunky. 
Well, when we look at uh, going back to the discussion we had earlier, and we were talking about how the fractional reserve nature of fiat currency and the speed of settlement in contrast to Bitcoin exposes this massive issue for balance sheet liquidity. Do you see a similar dynamic with uh, once this really starts turbocharging and kicking into high gear, which I think is happening here in this coming four years uh, with Bitcoin and stable coins really kind of kicking into high gear? Do you see that exposing some balance sheet issues with the, the failure of immediately settling real equity like Apple stock or Google stock as marketable securities on top of uh, balance sheets? Is that an issue or is it a little bit more disconnected and, and not as much of a concern? No, it's absolutely an issue. And there was someone over the weekend who brought up the DTC's continuous net settlement system and basically said, look, all you Bitcoiners who are cheering the ETF, you guys just signed your death warrant. And his explanation for that was that there will be, he, he predicts, a perpetual naked short in the Bitcoin ETFs. And just like there are for one of the S&P 500 ETFs. And the reason the DTC never closes out that position and forces the short covering is because these fault tolerances that I talked about earlier, and he explained, you can have a failure to deliver for up to 35 days, okay? And you're just constantly rolling your failure to deliver every 35 days. And no one's ever calling the margin call. So one of the things the SEC got right, and I'm not afraid to call balls and strikes on the SEC more than, you know, a lot of folks just think the SEC is evil. It's not. It's definitely not done some things right. But one thing it did do right is it said on these Bitcoin ETFs, the custodian is not allowed to lend or rehypothecate in any way the underlying Bitcoin. So assuming that that is complied with, then where are the shenanigans going to happen at that layer two? So the layer two is the ETF. And there will be derivatives and other layers piled on top of those ETFs. And that's where the shenanigans will happen. And his, his point, and it, he is right, there are these kinds of things where there are, you know, market makers are allowed to issue more ETF units than they have collateral in-house just to facilitate liquid markets. Now, that's not going to be huge. That might be, you know, 5% of the float. But this net continuous net negative in the CNS system of the DTC that can keep rolling every 35 days. I mean, it's it's caused a perpetual negative position in in this particular ETF he was talking about. And that may happen in the in the Bitcoin ETFs as well. I don't think that's a threat to Bitcoin. It's a threat mm -hmm. to the ETFs. Mm -hmm. it, is it but, a threat to the ETF? Threat to Bitcoin. Is it a threat to the ETFs or is it a threat to the market makers? Well, good question that comes back to are some of these. Wall Street firms going to blow themselves up because yeah. they don't understand that there isn't going to be a bailout on Bitcoin. There isn't. And so they better not get themselves too naked short. One of the problems with the ETFs, well, just how prime brokerage works is that they commingle and allow collateral substitution. So if you have a net short position and you get a margin call in that Bitcoin ETF, you're allowed to satisfy it with cash. Okay, that's fine. But, and this is what this guy's point was, that means that the short position in the Bitcoin ETFs is just going to keep growing. And it's going to, it's all, that is going to impact the price of Bitcoin. It's not going to impact the quantity of Bitcoin. Now, the hardcore Bitcoiners, when I've talked about this kind of phenomenon in the past, they all say, well, that just means I can buy Bitcoin more cheaply. That's great. 
But it also means everybody's pockets being picked. And it also does mean that there is financial stability risk to some of the market makers. You're right. So I think this manifests itself just for people who are listening to this now for when this probably happens. If you're seeing a large spread between assets that are supposedly on deposit versus the price of the shares, is that kind of the canary in the coal mine that this particular ETF is in trouble with respect to, similar to like what we saw with GBTC. GBTC. I was yeah. just going to say that was in retrospect, the canary in the coal mine. Mm-hmm. There was also a really great thread about the Widowmaker trade. I'll get you links to these, to, to these tweets because they were two people I'd never followed before. And mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, Twitter, Twitter is filled with, you know, it's a giant sewer sometimes, but, <laughs> but it's got just, just great nuggets of information from people who know what they're talking about. And one guy came out and admitted he lost $700,000 on the GBTC trade and called it the Widowmaker trade. Mm. And then he explained how he got out at a negative 38% return and why he's grateful for that. And it does, Preston, it gets exactly what you're asking about. The fact that GBTC was trading at such a huge premium was the canary in the coal mine. Something's wrong. And a lot of people tried to arbitrage that and blew themselves up over it. And we're not done clearing it out. I think that he, he, this person explained that that's a big reason why the price dropped as soon as the Bitcoin came on, uh, Bitcoin ETFs got approved. Because you finally unlocked people who'd been sitting in losing positions and just wanted out of that Widowmaker trade. And we've got to clear a big chunk of that before Bitcoin's going to rally again. I don't know how much. One of the things that I think is, is interesting about this is it's not something like, let's say, your fidelity. You can't protect against this trade happening with your paper shares as they're being listed on all these exchanges. So it's not something that they can even guard against because, as people will see in some of these ETFs, if the price is, is grossly below the assets under management, that's telling you that there's some type of market maker that's actually going about to blow up in this process. And so let's walk through, let's say that that, that scenario plays out, the market maker explodes. How does the price of the paper come back to the, the underlying assets in, or the, the, the Bitcoin that's in the trust that represents the Bitcoin in the trust? Only at redemption, mm. right? Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and ultimately, this is, see, this is one of the things that, that our product team would love to do. I don't know if the SEC will ever approve it, but an actual physical redemption from an ETF. It's not allowed right now. Technically, in ETFs, the, 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 there is a physical redemption option, but it's the issuer's option. So, one of the things we may look at down the road is having a physical redemption option at the ETF owner's Mm. option, not the ETF issuer's option. And this is where Custodia is in a really interesting position because as long as we execute on our business plan, and again, this is look at who we've got on our team. Wes is the tip of our iceberg. He is as committed to solvency and being one-to-one backed. And you can see it. You can trace your actual UTXOs proof of reserves that we, you know, what all of the requirements we have to comply with in for the Wyoming laws, all that pre-exam work that we had to do, all the penetration testing, the proof of reserves, that's all codified in Wyoming law. We have to comply with it in the rules and regulations, as well as the statutes and the supervisory examination handbook. That's all out there, right? So it's not just a best practice. It's something we have to comply with. If we could offer that, we would. 
if I was one of these people pulling the strings on one of these ETFs and I was fighting for market share uh, or assets under management, which there, I mean, you talk about the coin tucky derby. Some people have, have <laughs> called this over the next six yep. months to nine months. I would highly encourage that you listen to the last 15 minutes of this interview and, and try to figure out how you can make that happen. Because I think a massive competitive advantage for one of these ETFs is having something like that, that people inside of that are investing their money inside of these things know that they can, they can basically pull or push the button to extract the real value out of it as Wall Streeters are going to play the, the games that Wall Streeters play on the paper that ride on top of this. Boy, get this conversation into the hands of people that are running these ETFs. That's my recommendation. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's such a there's such a fissure in the industry because we saw, you know, Vanguard went hard negative and some others are just not making these available to their customers, but several others are. So there, there's like a giant divide now that the Bitcoin ETF has created within the asset management industry and within mm -hmm, the, mm -hmm. the wirehouse as the broker, broker dealers, whether they're making this available to their customers or not. Preston, I think what you just laid out is going to, we're going to have that divide among ETF managers down the road mm -hmm. because you had to get the first, you know, V1 out the door, but what does V2.0 and V3.0 look, look like? like? Yeah. Right. And this is where some of the tweaks and that's where Custodia can play. And let me kick it over to Wes to see if he has anything to add here, because we've set ourselves up to be a different custodian. And to the extent that there's an actual physical redemption someday on an underlying ETF, boy, that would be fun. And we'd love to conceptually love to participate in that. Wes. Yeah, I think the the Bailment, along with our segregated account structure, just really sets us up not only for this product, but for, for anything in the future. Because again, we that transparency and that openness is really something that's a tenant of ours. And I think that at the end of the day, that will win out over the other games that are being played in the industry. And so when you have something sound and secure like we do, it's only a matter of time before that rises to the top. What a checkmate move if you are a market maker that's, that's wanting to play these games. If the ETF has custody like this, that puts the power into the hands of the end user and, and the owner of, of the shares, I think they, that they would be forced to play an ethical game as opposed to the, the fractional reserve shenanigans that they're accustomed to. And boy, do I hope that that's the future. I really do, Caitlin. Yeah, and I think it will divide mm -hmm. the ETF sponsors in the future between mm -hmm. those that want to stick with the old-fashioned games and those that are willing to play mm -hmm. with the Bitcoin ethos in mind mm -hmm. that we are giving up the right mm -hmm. to leverage ourselves and put our customers at risk. The traditional big Wall Street players probably won't go there, but you know, among those, what, it's 11 or 12 ETF issuers... Some of those are hardcore Bitcoiners. Some of those are not at all. They're traditional Wall Street. I can easily see that group splitting yeah. in the coming years yeah. into one that really is committed to one-to-one, -one, even if the fees are higher. It's, you know, in a yeah. way, it's kind of like the fractional reserve banking model, right? You got to pay fees. The bank has to cover their cost of capital and their expenses. But a lot of people don't understand that the no-fee accounts, whether it's a no-fee bank account, or a no-fee fund through the fund management industry, 
there's a lot of risk on the backside that's not being properly priced. Yes. And that's the punchline. And some are willing to pay higher fees for the transparency and understanding that their counterparty isn't going to rug them the way that the traditional leveraged model potentially could end up doing. Wow. What a conversation. I learned a ton in this chat. I cannot thank you guys enough. Obviously, we'll have links in the show notes to the Custodia Bank. Any other highlights that you guys have? Wes, talk about our white paper. It's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so our head of products worked up a white paper, and it, it really goes into our segregated account structure and uh, the legal bailment and all of the tenants of our product offerings. So we have a get started page on our website. Come over and get some more information. We can press that. We'll get that white paper sent over to you. And we're happy to help anybody uh, that's in the you know institutional custody space. Love it, guys. Thank you for educating and uh, always being on the right side ethically and morally of uh, where Bitcoin needs to move next. So just an honor to have you here, uh, Wes and Caitlin. And thank you. Thanks, Preston. And congratulations to you on your announcement today about joining Ego Death Capital. Thank you. That, I can't wait to Absolutely. see what you guys do. Thank that you. Is, uh, it's great. You know, one last thought is the Bitcoin ecosystem has continued to fund venture capital investments. It's the non-Bitcoin ecosystem that's been in a real dearth mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. of investments. And you guys have been able to raise fund two, I think you said. Yes. Um, and that tells you something. While a lot of the traditional VCs are on the sidelines, the Bitcoin VCs are growing. I think that speaks volumes. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate that, guys. All right. Well, thanks for joining us and uh, we'll catch you guys next week. If you guys enjoyed this conversation, be sure to follow the show on whatever podcast application you use. Just search for We Study Billionaires. The Bitcoin-specific shows come out every Wednesday, and I'd love to have you as a regular listener. If you enjoyed the show or you learned something new or you found it valuable, if you can leave a review, we would really appreciate that. And it's something that helps others find the interview in the search algorithm. So anything you can do to help out with a review, we would just greatly appreciate. And with that, thanks for listening, and I'll catch you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.